Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Adjumang, and Ben Yearsley, Director at Shaw Financial Planning. All eyes may be on Neil Woodford's new fund and its portfolio lineup, which he revealed on Wednesday, but he has also recently made some significant changes to a slightly older CF Woodford equity income fund. One of the most striking of these changes is his decision to axe his holding in pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, which he had held for 15 years in a number of the funds he has run over that time. Ben, what do you make of this? And does it mean investors should be concerned about equity income funds with a large allocation to healthcare shares, or if they have one, specialist healthcare funds? Um, it's an interesting one because Neil has become probably more vocal in the last few years about companies that he thinks aren't performing, aren't doing what he wants them to do, I suppose. And Glaxo is one where he's been quite public um, in the last few months about the direction of the business and, and, and not being happy with it. And um, I suppose the ultimate thing you do if you're a fund manager or any investor and you don't like the direction of the company, you sell it. Um, and it's as simple as that. Now, interestingly, so we sold that, but AstraZeneca, another big healthcare company, is the number one holding in the, in the new Woodford Income Focus Fund. And it's been a, a long-term holding in his other uh, Woodford Equity Income Fund and prior to that in the Invesco Perpetual Fund. So it's not a case of Neil ditching healthcare. It's Neil ditching Glaxo because he doesn't, by the looks of it, agree with the direction of the business going forward. Um, but he's still got yeah, 7.39% uh, weight in Astra in the new fund, uh, the number one holding. So um, from that point of view... It's a call on the company, not a call on the sector. There's also other healthcare mm. holdings in the in the new fund as well. AbbVie's at number five with a three and a half percent weight, and Gilead's in there at a two percent weight. So it's not a healthcare call; it's a Glaxo call. Okay. Um, now the other major move was the addition of a bank, which is an area that Neil Woodford's hardly touched since two thousand and three. Um, what did he add, and do you think it was a good move? Um, I think this is a fascinating one, actually, um, more so than the Glaxo uh, piece. So he's bought Lloyd's uh, uh, into the portfolio. 2.6% um, weight in the new fund, uh, number six position. So uh, he's also got other financials in there as well. He's got Aviva and a few other uh, non-banks in there as well. And, yeah, this is a significant move because he had a very brief flirtation with HSBC from memory about six years ago, five Yeah, it was ago, 20, he bought it 2013 and he oh, held it. Okay. Yeah, he held it for about nine months, ditched yeah. it in 2014 because he thought we were going to get more fines off the regulator. Um, I think each SPC had already had some in 2012 and there was all this stuff going on of, um, uh, you know, those issues that banks facing yeah. at the time. So we had that brief flirtation mm. and that's basically it in the last, as you say, 12, 13 years. Um, again, it's significant. So what does Neil do? Neil buys typically buys out-of-favour, um, contrarian positions, areas that lots of other managers don't touch. Now, financials has been an interesting one because up until probably a year ago, that was that sector. No one liked financials. No one was buying them for a whole variety of reasons. So, yeah, 
uh, fines for the banking sector. I mean, the, the PPI scandal has just about ended now. But then that ends and you go on to the LIBOR rigging scandals and U.S. mortgage fraud and this, that and the other. And so it's been the sector that's been beset with problems ever since the financial crisis. So, you know, we're talking a decade virtually now of poor returns, fines, regulation, etc., etc. I assume the reason he's gone into it now is that the sector is now very different. It's much more utility-like. It's much more consistent. Um, it's much more focused on um, good, consistent, long-term earnings and dividends to shareholders. You, know, you look at the capital position of, of, of the UK banks now. Now, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but most of them are 12 or 13% uh, uh, tier one capital, which is their kind of buffer if things go wrong compared to, again, from memory, about 4 or 5% uh, just before the financial crisis. So banks in the UK, and, and actually the US as well, um, are much more secure, much better run, much more focused than they ever have been in the, the, for the last decade, basically. Um, Lloyd is an interesting one. It's finally, uh, the, the UK government finally sold its last stake in it this week. Um, it's out of, so it's out of government hands, out of public hands. It's in a good position. It's tied into the UK. You know, it's obviously one of the biggest UK mortgage lenders. Dividends are coming through quite nicely. They've paid about 3.5p roughly this year, if you include the specials, on a share price of about 70p. So dividend yields 4 to 5%. You know, that's a good number. And in a, in a, in a business that is fundamentally changed from, say, five or six years ago. Okay. I'm well, a big fan of financials. I think it's. Yeah. Um, I've been buying into the sector uh, uh, probably for about 18 months, two years now. Lloyd's is one of my personal personal biggest holdings in my ISA. I've got I've got a Viva. I've got Provident. You know, I've got lots. Funny, I've Neil's got quite got quite a few of these in his portfolio. Yeah. But you know, it's because that they're, they're offering good, consistent dividend yields, and they are uh, cheap compared to a lot of other sectors in the market because they've been unloved for so long. With that in mind, do you think investors, when they're choosing equity income funds, should they choose now, now choose equity income funds that have a significant um, allocation to financials? And, you know, if investors can go even higher up of a scale, do you think they should start buying specialist financials funds? Right. There's two separate points, I suppose. The first one is, should you focus on funds that have stocks and sectors you like in there. And I would say, actually, uh, no. You buy good quality fund managers and you leave them to it. So Neil's not, so Neil's not bought you know, Lloyd's for years or any of the banks for years and suddenly he is. Should, does that mean you should start buying that fund because um, you like financials? No, you buy that because you want Neil Woodford as your manager of part of your portfolio. And he, if he happens to be in financials, brilliant. If he doesn't, well, he's obviously made a call on that. And you don't want everybody doing the same thing in your portfolio. So you don't want three equity income funds all heavily, all heavily into financials because we might as well just own one. Mm. You, know, you want diversification. Uh, and managers have different reasons. And there's no, you know, Neil might not be right on Lloyd's. You know, it, it might be, there might be more fines around the corner. Something might be uncovered. So, you know, the property market might crash in the UK and suddenly Lloyd's is the most exposed bank. So you don't want the same bet in every part of your portfolio. Um, and I'm much more of the opinion you should be buying managers you like and trust for the long term and let them 
leave them to it, basically. Um, so the second part of the question about financials fund, yes, I probably would consider actually a financials fund at the moment. Um, and actually, going back to what about uh, earlier about healthcare, actually, I'm a big fan of healthcare funds as okay. well. Um, Which ones do you like? Uh, so in the healthcare space, uh, I recently bought Polar Healthcare Opportunities because it's got a bit of, um, uh, it's got a broad coverage in the whole sector. So it's got pharma and bio mm. and device. It's got a bit of everything. Um, the, the danger with specialist funds, and whether that's commodities, whether that's financials, whether that's healthcare, whether that's tech, um, is you've got to be wary of doubling up. Yeah, so you've, got, you've, you've, got, yeah. you've got your normal portfolio of, you know, you've got your equity income funds from the UK, you might have a US growth fund and you might have Jupiter European and then you've got some Asian stuff and emerging markets, etc., etc. Fine. All of those funds will have holdings that may or may not be in financials or healthcare or tech or, or whatever. And, and in a big way, and unless you're monitoring at them all the time, you might suddenly have a much bigger exposure to one particular sector than you're comfortable with if you've then got specialist sector funds as well. So you've always got to be wary of that doubling up um, yeah. impact. Yeah. So I'm not saying don't buy them. And I say no. I, I specifically bought Polar about two weeks ago because I just looked at it and thought, I want – it's a cheap sector. Mm. You know, okay. it's cheap. The, the, the mm. demographic story, for example, in healthcare is obviously well known. We're an aging population. You know, more and more is going to have to be spent on uh, medical, the healthcare generally. And I just thought that gave a nice all-round exposure um, to the broad space of bio health, etc., etc. Yeah, so, bearing um, in mind. But just yeah, just watch out for the doubling up exposure. Yeah, I was saying bearing that in mind. Um, how much attention should investors pay to allocation and allocation changes in their funds? And to what extent should they just let the manager get on with it, providing long-term returns are good? I think they should let the manager get on with it. I think, and it's something I've mentioned, I think, quite a few times when I've done uh, like the, uh, the portfolio reviews for, for Investors Chronicle readers. People look at their portfolios too much. They, mm-hmm. they over-analyze, micro-analyze the situation, what's in there and, and things like that, and, and start looking at selling funds on the back of one-week performance and one-month performance, which is daft in my view. Mm. Um, How long so, should you give a manager time to improve, bearing in mind the fact that actually CF Woodford Equity Income didn't have a great 16, 2016? Had, had a poor 16. And, and you look yeah. at, back at Neil's career, using mm. him again, every three or four years, he's had a poor year. Mm. Um, you know, and then he has a period of two or three years of excellent performance, and then he'll do it again. And you, you make your best returns by sticking, by sticking with the good managers for the long term and not trying to market time. So, in answer to your question about, you know, the port, should you be monitoring the portfolio? Yes, it's interesting. Bear, bear in mind that you're looking at it after the event, though. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a portfolio from a fact sheet dated the 30th of April. Now, two weeks, three weeks later, four weeks later you don't know if that manager sold those shares. So you're always looking at a, a snapshot in time that might not be the same today. So it's very dangerous trying to model your portfolio based on historic data like that, um, which is why it's more important making sure you're comfortable with your holdings, leave the managers to it. And if you have got the specialist funds, you know you have got that danger of the doubling up that might occur. 
key. So I wouldn't be changing portfolios or funds, sorry, on the basis of that manager's gone heavily into financials and I don't like financials. If I'm comfortable with Adrian Frost or comfortable, comfortable with Neil Woodford or, or whoever it might be, then I would stick with them and leave them to it. They've got, they're doing this 24-7. They're looking for shares. They're looking for companies that they think are cheap, that they think are going to get, make money over the long term. You know, if you're an investor, you've got a day job. You know, mm. you might be a, whatever you are, doctor or a teacher or whatever yeah. you're doing. You've got a day job. You're only going to be looking at this in the evenings or weekends. You know, leave it to the professionals, in my view. Okay, thank you, Ben. Those are really helpful points there. And you can see the full list of new additions to CF Woodford Equity Income in this week's Investors Chronicle on the website. Now, Asset Manager Source, which runs Exchange Traded Funds, or ETFs for short, has recently announced that it's being taken over. But two days before it made this news public, it made another key announcement. Kate, what is this? Another two connected? So, yeah, Source has said that it's going to cut two of its ETFs. So the Source FTSE RAFI UK Equity Income um, and Source FTSE RAFI US Equity Income. Um, Now, Source says that these two things are not connected, um, although it has to be said that this is the one area where the two kind of product ranges, I guess, overlap. Um, In fact, Source says that the decision is taken because these ETFs are no longer economically viable. um, And indeed, they are quite small in terms of assets. um, And it told shareholders of, of the decision two days before. Um, it told shareholders of the Invesco takeover. Which does seem like a bit of a coincidence. It does seem like a coincidence, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, which of the Invesco ETFs with which the source ETFs have similarities with? And, um, I mean, ha- exactly how similar are they to each other? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be said, it's not as if these track exactly the same indices. So the Invesco ones, it's the PowerShares range. So PowerShares FTSE RAFI US 1000 and PowerShares FTSE RAFI UK 1000. Obviously, all of those, a bit of a mouthful. It's it's that these indices are from the same index family, I guess you could say. So the FTSE RAFI um, benchmark range, they're kind of fundamentally weighted value style kind of UK and US indices. So they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. Okay. What do um, fund analysts think about the upcoming closures of these source ETFs? Well, it's interesting but because before um, that announcement or before kind of everybody was aware of these closures, analysts were saying that the FTSE RAFI area might be one that, that, that source would cut um, or that Invesco would cut after the takeover just because it's one of the clear or kind of the only clear area of overlap Mm. Um, and you would kind of generally expect I guess a bit of rationalisation of of product line um, after a takeover particularly if there are duplications Uh, so analysts were saying you know maybe that would be uh, something which they might cut but they did also make the point that it's not as if they track the same benchmark so it wasn't kind of a foregone conclusion by any means. Okay, and is it likely that more source or Invesco funds will close? Well, in in fact, analysts seem to say um, it's unlikely because, I mean, this deal has been motivated by the fact that Invesco really wants more of a presence in Europe. At the moment, Invesco is a big presence in the US, um, but not so much over here in the way that, for example, BlackRock and Vanguard 
are. Uh, so the the motivation to to buy Source is is because Source has this very good spread of broad benchmark ETFs and some more kind of uh, selective or smart beta ones. So you think it wouldn't make a lot of sense for them to to have bought them up for their product range and then start cutting. Um, but at the same time, maybe you would see some of the very small source ETFs with very small assets under management being cut. I mean, there is no you know that would that's pure speculation mm. um but after these kind of deals you do see often some cuts so we'll have to wait and see okay and is it of any other important things that investors should be aware of about regarding this upcoming merger um well i, I guess it, just as a kind of wider point it it's an interesting um sign of the times i guess or an, an interesting comment on the etf market generally which is so pressured from a price and margin point of view that it's resulted in these very big players having a very big chunk of the market um, and that's resulting in more and more kind of mergers and acquisitions in this space um, I mean Invesco has already bought power shares back in 2006 mm. um, and this is obviously a move to kind of compete with uh, BlackRock and Vanguard which have a kind of massive presence in this market ETFs are really such a volume game because they're so cheap. Uh, it's very hard to make a profit unless you have enormous assets under management. So I guess that's that's an interesting kind of um, sign of what's happening in this industry. And on just in terms of the actual source and Invesco deal, uh, it will be interesting for investors to see what happens to sources' relationships with other asset managers like PIMCO, Goldman Sachs. Um, people investing in source will, will see those names a lot. Uh, in because relation they've to run ETFs. some of source ETFs. Exactly, because source, 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 yeah. But that might not happen. Well, it'll well. just be interesting to see what happens with that relationship yeah. um, subsequently. Okay, some things to look out for there. Um, Ben, um, when an asset manager, which is running one of your funds, has taken over, should you be concerned? Because there's uncertainty. And, you know, I mean, in this example, well, two funds have been closed. Uh, yes. I mean, you should always be um, uh, on, on top of the news and on top of the story. Um, it doesn't mean you should sell, but it needs. it means you need to monitor to make sure that post the merger, whether it's, you know, in this scenario... Two ETF companies merging, you know, nothing's really changing. It's all passive. Um, and as long as what you're going to hold post the merger is basically the same as what you had pre the merger, then it doesn't really matter. It's more of an issue in obviously active fund management companies when they merge because inevitably there'll be job losses. Mm. So the big one coming up this year is going to be standard. Standard Life, Life Aberdeen. Aberdeen, yeah. Stabberdeen, I think they're going to be called on. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Standard Life Aberdeen. And, you know, that will inevitably lead to job losses. Mm. There's no, you know, they've got... Which could also mean fund closures or fund mergers, I suppose. Yeah, there will be. There's bound to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there'll be duplication. Uh, there's duplication of funds across the range. You're not going to have, you know, five Asian funds or four Asian funds. Mm. You, you, that has to come down to three or, two, or whatever the number actually mm. is. So... Um, but you can't do anything in the interim until you know. So there's no point panicking and selling or doing anything precipitous like that. You need to wait until the merger's gone through and the, the their proposals have, have, have been published. Yeah. And then you can make a rational decision to go, okay, well, I was happy with, you know, Standard Life's equity income fund. 
the manager's staying, so actually it doesn't matter that that's mm. merging without Billings Equity Income. For example, so want, yeah. Or, yeah. the other way around, I, I wanted to have a standard life equity mm. income fund. The manager's leaving, mm. oh, I don't really want Aberdeen's. So, mm, I think I'll switch to another provider. Yeah, yeah. So, but you can't do that until you know what's actually happening. Yeah, and who's staying and who's going. Okay. Exactly. So, so the, yeah. the, the answer is, don't do anything precipitous. Don't rush into panic selling or anything. You don't need to. The funds are still being looked after. Waste yeah, and you're not like you're going to lose your money even if you do merge funds. I mean, it's, well, exactly, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, and the fund houses take on the cost of the merger themselves. Mm. So there shouldn't be any impact. It's only, you know, what are you going to end up with post that once the merger's gone through? And are you happy with the investment manager, the um, uh, the philosophy, the, you know, what the fund's trying to do, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Would you say, I mean, what, where have any examples, let's say, of asset manager mergers where it's perhaps worked out really well for the investors and the funds? Uh, it's an interesting question, actually. Um, there have been lots of... Uh, does it work out well? Hmm. I, I don't Maybe it's think, not a clear cut. No, I don't, <laughs> yeah, think, it, I don't no. think it is, actually. I think you're going to get more and more of it mm. because I think scale is important. Um you know, compliance costs are increasing, regulatory costs are increasing, and therefore, you know, if you have a big company, that those fixed costs can be spread amongst a larger group of investors. So that mm. overall brings the cost down. Um, has only gone really well. You know, the, who are the big companies that have done it in the last few years? Henderson's, Henderson's swallowed up uh, a few people. So the, yeah, they swallowed, and Aberdeen yeah. have as well, actually. Mm. And you've got to look at those and go, well, okay, they've been, you know, pretty reasonable you know Aberdeen have good funds Henderson have good funds mm. um, obviously talking about Invesco and Neil Woodford today a lot because um, that was almost uh, that was fairly disastrous or, or it could have been fairly disastrous when Invesco bought Perpetual back in 2000 2001 uh, there were so many rumours about Neil potentially leaving because mm. he was unhappy but he stayed um, until obviously sort of three years ago yeah. and, and did an excellent job for investors but there was mm. lots of uncertainty so going back that far you could have taken that uncertainty, uncertainty and gone oh I'm going to sell Neil Woodford's fund mm. and lost out it might go a bit wrong yeah. not looking good he's not you know the press stories are all he's not happy but actually you know 13 years after that you know he he done you an excellent job, made you a lot of money, money uh, and everybody's happy. So I suppose the key is don't panic. Inevitably, there will be job losses, fund mergers, because that's the whole point. Um, and then then you can assess rationally one, once that's happened or once the proposals are out yeah. about what you're going to do. So, Would you say there's any mergers that haven't gone well? Um, there's nothing... Mm. Nothing disastrous. Sorry, I've been trying to think about this, and there's, mm. there's nothing disastrous that springs to mind. You know, any individual's going to go, you know, there's always going to be unhappy fund managers in the process. And, you know, they have a tendency to flounce off in kind of prima donna mm. <laughs> annoyance yeah. um, when they don't get what they want. The pay pack, package they want, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but, but say what kind of thing. Yeah. So... Um, I know they're they're a rescue one. So when Newstar went bust, mm. um, yeah, Henderson bust. obviously went and and Aberdeen bought a few of the funds as well, actually. Yeah, um, and all the other way around with it. So, is there anything disastrous? No, but is there anything where you go, wow, that just really, really worked? And you go, well, also no as well. It's kind of watch and wait. It's middle yeah. of the road. Yeah, mm. um, it's okay. when you've got two processes. That's yeah. the more dangerous ones when you've got two very distinct, you know, groups mm. with philosophies and process 
try to merge. That's that's where you start to get a bit nervous. Okay, thanks, Ben and Kate. Some um, really helpful points there. Now, the days when a phone was only for phoning people are long gone, and no doubt many of you use yours to message, check emails, read the news, and do your shopping. Maybe you're listening to this podcast right now on your phone. But another activity increasingly being done via mobile devices such as a phone or tablet is managing your portfolio and trading funds and shares. Emma, you've been looking at this. Why increasing numbers of people managing their portfolios via their smartphones? Well, the main reason is the convenience of being able to view and in some cases trade while on the go. And mobile obviously makes it very easy to do this and to monitor your investments. So it can be useful to see what's happening um, and see, for example, if there's a large and sudden fall if one of your holdings and then you know, look into it further. Are there any particular type of investors who are doing this? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's it's young investors who are leading the way in mobile. And these are people who are just used to running everything else on their mobile. So managing their portfolio is a natural extension. Um, for example, the broker Hargreaves Lansdowne found that three in every five of their accounts opened by mobile were by people under 35. Okay. Now, are there any reasons why maybe it's not a good idea to manage your finances when you're standing in the bus queue, etc., etc.? But um, um, yes, I mean there are. Um, you know, checking your portfolio too often, for example, every day, can make you maybe a little bit obsessed and more likely to make rash decisions. Um, and of course, markets can be volatile, so you don't really want to overreact to short-term movements by trading too often. Okay. Would you say, I mean, how does, you know, managing your portfolio via your phone compare to doing it via a desktop computer or laptop? Well, actually, it's a bit harder to do so because compared to your computer or laptop, um, you can use all the websites, but not all the brokers and platforms offer an app. So you're actually going to have less choice for who Uh, um, you can, mm, you can, you know, mm. use mobile investing for. And sometimes that means that you're not going to be able to use the broker that's the most cost effective for you because they don't have an app. Right. Okay. Ben, do you think it's a good idea to manage your finances via your phone? Um, The iPad, yes. Phone, not so. I find it, especially when you're looking at investments, I do find doing anything on the phone a bit fiddly. Whereas something like a tablet, I find that perfectly adequate and I spend you know, most of my life on my iPad or tablet, you know, uh, working and, you know, when I'm looking at my own portfolio, I do it on the tablet. I very rarely use my desktop mm, okay. for managing my investments. But equally, I don't use the phone because I find that too small. Yeah. And functionality is normally far less. And I like being able to look at the charts. And Isn't that quite important? Your major financial decision, you need to analyse all the data, don't you? You do. And I, yeah. I just find the screen on the phone too small for that. Mm. So I've got no issue with using apps. I quite like using apps. They're normally a much quicker way of logging in to your own accounts and things like that. But, yeah, just the screen, I think, is too small. I think Emma's point about, again, something I've banged on about so many times, about the, you know, looking too often. You know, if you're, if yeah. you're a frequent share trader, you need to keep on top of the news and what's happening. If you're a fund investor, you don't. Okay. And the danger with it on your phone is you're there all the time going, oh, I've gone up half a percent today, or oh, I've fallen half a percent or whatever, and it's irrelevant. Over medal. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ben. And you can see Emma's tips on how to choose the best broker mobile app for you in this week's magazine on the website. 
That brings us to the end of today's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang at Investors Chronicle and Ben Yearsley, Director at Shaw Financial Planning. You can read more Neil Woodford's new investments, the Source Investco merger and investing via mobile app in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.